Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki. And I'm Dale Spangler. And this week, we have writer, storyteller, and founder of We Went Fast, Brett Smith. It's a new year, and we're excited to announce we've launched a new Pit Pass Moto store, where you can show your support for Pit Pass Moto with some of our new branded merchandise. Head to pitpassmoto.com and look for the store button at the top of the homepage. This week's industry spotlight, we'd like to talk about uh, the unfortunate passing of racing icon Earl Hayden, who passed away December 29th. Earl, he's uh, built a racing dynasty with his three sons, Nikki, Tommy, and Roger Lee. He's been one of the most influential people in AMA dirt track racing as well as road racing. As we all know, this culminated with Nikki's winning the MotoGP World Championship in 2006. We'd like to give a pit pass moto shout out to Earl and Godspeed to him. He was 74 years old. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Upcoming racing, we have the Dakar Rally underway in Saudi Arabia, which began on New Year's Day with the prologue stage and finishes 12 stages later on January 14th. Gas Gas Factory Racing's Sam Sunderland leads the general rankings after stage two over Adrian Van Beveren and Daniel Sanders. The Kicker Arena Cross Series starts this weekend, January 7th and 8th, with the opening round set to take place in Loveland, Colorado. The Hoosier Arena Cross Series will return after a holiday break for rounds 9 and 10 in Kansas City, Missouri at the Hale Arena on January 14th and 15th. And finally, the series many have been anticipating for months, the Monster Energy AMA Supercross Series kicks off this weekend, January 8th. The series returns to a traditional start in Southern California at Anaheim's Angel Stadium and will be the opening round of the 250 West Series and the first of 17 rounds for the Premier 450 class.
We'd like to welcome to the show today, Brett Smith. He is the editor, t-shirt folder, and intern at We Went Fast. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dale. Thanks, Dave. Yes, the uh, t-shirt job is, uh, there's an opening there if anyone would like to volunteer. It's a volunteer <laughs> position though, so. And we love that. And, and I, and I got to say, if you've dealt with We Went Fast, Brett puts a personal touch into every shipment. I just think uh, that is just one of the things that separates you from a lot of the other places and and uh, it's greatly appreciated. It's the little things that count, the details, right? Absolutely, and it definitely adds up. Well, thank you. Yep. Lots of goodies available at wewentfast.com and wewentfast.com slash shop. If I could get a little plug in there. Thank you so much. Hey, Brett, let's talk a little bit about your current project that you have kind of in two parts. So a little while ago, you rolled out a long-form piece called Little Giant, the PW50 story. And then recently, you also created a documentary. Tell us a little bit about that project and how it came about for one, and then the, the second part, how it turned into a documentary. Everyone likes a first bike story, right? We all connect emotionally to that first thrill. And most of us, that involved smashing into the side of something, whether it was a house or a barn, we all whiskey throttled into some immovable object. But uh, maybe that was just me. But my first bike was the PW50. And of course, that had been, that story had been on my radar for years. I, I even before I started, we went fast.com. I think I knew like, I'll tell the 40th anniversary story of the PW because Yamaha is still making that bike. And the only thing they've changed is the color and a little bit of, you know, the, the fenders, a little bit of design of the bodywork. When I saw the, the anniversary coming up, we went fast.com was up and running. And I thought, well, that, that's where I'm going to tell it then. It's my story. It's, it's my brand. And that's where that story is going to live. And I went as far as tracking down Ed Burke, who was the product planner for that bike, long retired from Yamaha, but uh, still enjoying the retired life down in uh, Arizona and Nevada. And we riffed about why they brought that thing to market, why they, why they released the YZ50, which you probably remember, Dale. And it lasted a year. It was one of the bikes that Damon Bradshaw rode before he moved on to the junior cycle class, the 60cc and 80ccs. So this YZ50 lasts a year, and then they introduced the PW50, which was nothing like it. But I'm getting off track. The PW50 was my first bike, and I wanted to tell the story of that thing. So we did. It's like a six, 7,000-word article on wewentfast.com. It's available as a podcast on my podcast channel. Just search We Went Fast. I think it's episode number 12 or 11 or 12. And people just start sending me photos of their experience with a PW50. It becomes this like community response, which was what We Went Fast originally was anyways. I wanted it to be a community of people just sharing their own stories. So it was like, it was just the perfect scenario for me because it was everything I'd, I'd wanted as a brand, as a storyteller. When it was done though, I, I was kind of exhausted with the PW50, you know, lots of photos, lots of stories, wrote that thing, spent months on it. And I thought it was exactly what I wanted it to be. I thought I was done with it. And Dale, I sent you that link to the story on my website about how the movie came to me. I was through with PW50s. We'd sold a t-shirt. Yamaha allowed me to do a limited run t-shirt, which has long since been sold out. And I felt like we did it and we did it right. And I was ready to move on. And Revzilla, which is now owned by Komodo, called me. I've written for them a little bit in the past. And they said, we loved the PW50 story. We want to make a movie. We want to adapt your article into a movie. 
And I just, (laughs) I kind of put my head down at the same desk I'm sitting at right now and just went, have you guys ever been like both excited and kind of dreading a project? You want to do it, but like, I I don't know. Cause I didn't know, like, how am I going to tell that story any differently? Like, I feel, I felt like I had done it already. It's been done. Like, how do I tell this story differently? And people had been sending me links to PW50s for sale. And I thought, well, that's cool. You know, they're out there. People are still selling them. They, they were sending me 1981 PW50s, which was what I had. The very first model year of the bike was 1981. It came out in the fall of 1980. And I kept getting these listings coming my way, for Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, you name it. And I thought, yeah, it'd be cool to own one, but what the hell would I do with it? I don't, I'm 42. I don't ride PW50s anymore. I have little girls, but we live in Baltimore. We don't, you know, PW50s aren't very good for doing wheelies. So I don't think those would, you know, go well in the streets of Baltimore. And that's when it hit me. And that's when I called Revzilla back. I said, we're going to buy a junker, an 81. I'll buy an original 81, just like the one I had that needs to be rescued. Like I had seen some that looked like they belonged in a museum, but that's not a very good story. I wanted a story. So I found one in Pittsburgh. I told him, we'll buy this, we'll restore it, and I'll teach my kid how to ride it on camera, live. That will be the story arc. Within that arc, we will tell the history of the PW50 and why it exists and how many lives it has changed. And that's the story in a nutshell. I think it translated very well. And I think they're kind of distinctly different in their own way. Kudos to you on that. I think it was you did an amazing job of you know taking long form and then turning it into a you know a similar story, but also unique in its own way. But one thing that stood out to me when I was reading the article, I thought was amazing, was it says three hundred eighty thousand of these have been sold worldwide in one hundred fifty countries. But the key point to me was not counting the countless times that has been passed along to others. And so it just made me kind of think like this bike is sort of the kind of like the old clothes we pass on to our brothers and sisters. Would you say that's kind of a a similarity? Exactly. The PW50 is the magazine that's sitting on the dentist's waiting room coffee table. You have no idea how many people will read that magazine. The PW50 is the same thing. Ask anyone who started on a PW50 and what they did with that bike next. Some of them kept them. Some of them got passed to cousin Jenny. Cousin Jenny gave it to her little brother. Her little brother then passed it on to the neighbor. There were so many stories that came to me and some of them got worked into the article and some of them didn't about PW50s that left the house, went to six, seven other houses. The owner lost track of it and then somehow got it back into their garage three decades later. I love stuff like that. And the PW50 movie is out, by the way. You can find it at, at Revzilla's YouTube page. Awesome. And it was an awesome story. Enjoyed watching every minute of it, Brett. That was that was one of the best. Um, and when I look through... Thanks so much. Absolutely. And I, when I look through the long list of stories that you've broken up, the moment, the shot, the short features, the long, long versions, there's so many, and it's hard to pick a favorite at this point. I know for myself, if I'm being selfish, because I did purchase the book, the Terry Pratt story... The Curious Life of Terry Pratt is how you, uh, I think, titled it. And uh, just thoroughly enjoyed the the depth of detail and the research that you went through to tell that compelling story going back to 1972. Can you talk a little bit about that process and, and what it was like? I like stories that come to me 
by accident, maybe isn't the right word, but I just put my four-year-old down for a nap. And this story about this young girl ends with her going to the dog pound and she's stressed out about how am I going to figure out which dog to get? Because there's dozens of dogs here. And the, the person who works at the dog pound said, you'll know the one, it'll come to you. And, you know, she figures out like that one dog in the back that wasn't getting any love or was quiet when the others were like in her face. That was the dog she wanted. That's how I pick stories. Like I let them come to me. I don't stress out about too much about what story am I going to tell next? Like it's all kind of by feel. And the Terry Pratt one, man, that Dave, the response to that story blew me away. And you can probably kind of measure it by the number of comments that were left on that story, which some of my stories get zero comments. Uh, maybe, for, I, I don't know why. That one got like four dozen comments, like people wanting to share their brush with Terry Pratt. Terry was a ad agent, an ad, a marketing executive for Cycle News for about three decades, if, if you're not familiar with the story. I saw that book. It's called Grand Prix Motocross, the 1972 World Championship Season, which I have for sale at wewentfast.com slash shop. I think it's the only place in, in the world where you can get it. That book went out of print when Terry died in 2012. I didn't see it until Terry was dead. I was in Davy Coombs' office. I pulled it off his shelf. I was flipping through it, and I saw a photo that I really liked. And I said, what, what's this book? And Davy gave me the, you know, oh, Terry Pratt, he's, he's, he's gone now. He's no longer with us. I wanted that photo, and I found his sister, and his sister said, I have all the books. And I said, like the books? She said, yeah. If you're ever out in the Moh middle of nowhere, Mojave Desert, come find me. But, but she said, you'll never, you'll never be out here. There's no reason for you to come, <laughs> come out to where I live. And in 2019, I had to go to California for something. And I called her and I said, I'm coming to see you, Shelly. I'm going to drive up there. It means three hours in the opposite direction of where I needed to go. And sitting in a, not a storage unit, it was like a closed down restaurant on the side of the road that her family, their family owned were stacks and stacks of boxes that had those books in it, which had been selling on Amazon and eBay for hundreds of dollars because you know anyone who wanted one couldn't find it. And anyone who had one wasn't getting rid of it because it's a gorgeous book. It's a beautiful piece of work. And she said, yeah, here they are. I, I don't know what to do with them. And at this point, I think I had just opened up my store, you know, that we went fast.com slash shop. I was selling a couple of t-shirts. These books are nearly three pounds each and I'm in a rental car and I'm in the Mojave desert and it's hotter than hell. It's June. I'm like, what? I'm like, Hey, I'll take 10 boxes and I'll ship them back to myself. And you know, we worked out a deal where she get, you know, she gets a commission off of every book that gets sold. And I said, Shelly, I have no idea if I'll sell a single book. I don't know if anyone wants these things, but I'll try. And she also handed me a box of stuff. And she said, this was the only thing that didn't get taken in like the estate sale as friends or whatever, you know, because Terry had a ton of motorcycles. He was big into Arma. He was big into vintage racing. He had a lot of bikes, parts. So that was the stuff that people love bikes and parts. I like paper. I'm not in, I'm not really into hard parts. I don't have a bunch of bikes in my garage. I like photographs. I like magazines. I like old slides. I like books that's the kind of stuff that like, like really gets me going. And she handed me this box of stuff and I didn't open it until I got back to my room in Temecula and I start going through it. And there, ah, Dale, you would love to see some of this stuff. They were typed up interviews 
that Terry did with Roger, Brad Lackey, Joel Robert, stuff that he did over in Europe in 72, 73, 74, because he went over to Europe three different times. And there were love letters from girls that he met along the way, notes home from mom, receipts, all the photos from the book, and a bunch of undeveloped negatives from the 1973 season. Just a treasure trove of information and clues left behind. And that's when it hit me, like, what is this guy's story? Terry Pratt. Like, who is he? You know, we, we, we always want to tell the stories of the Rogers and the Bob Hannas and Brad Lackey and Rick Johnson. But would anyone be interested in the story of Terry Pratt, an ad executive at Cycle News that most people have never heard of? Why not? What the hell? I'll give it a shot. And it turned out to be an amazing story. And, and uh, I love the way you tell it. And uh, just, you may have answered my, my next question, but my next question is, you've done things on a lot of different platforms in, in media. You know, written, obviously, is, 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 uh, is one of them in audio and video. Which, which is your favorite at this point? My one goal in high school was to be the editor of a motorcycle magazine. And I actually interviewed with dirt bike right out of college. No, dirt, like my final semester of college. But I'd also already done an internship down in um, Peachtree City, Georgia at Moto World which is a, a story all on its own. <laughs> they usually hired kids from Georgia State, University of Georgia to you know come down to Peachtree City and intern. This was at a little company called Steels Communications. They produced Moto World. And I begged them until they're like, yeah, come on down, but we have no place for you to stay. We don't pay you. I don't really think they expected me to show up and I did. And so I kind of learned a little bit of video production, but I still wanted to be a writer and when it came down to it, I just, I think I realized I was, I was an East coast kid. And so I stayed, I stayed on the East coast. I went and did the television production gig. And so I learned TV and kept writing on the side. And 20 years later in this era of new media, digital media, that's proved to be quite valuable to have all of those skills and the audio skills. I mean, I think you just, you just pull from your writing and your video skills to figure all that out. So at the end of the day, though, Dave, it's all storytelling, right? We're just telling a story, a, a good story, whether it's listening, writing, reading, or watching, you know, storytelling remains the same. Well, Brett, you're definitely, in my opinion, probably one of the best, if not the best, long form writer of our time. Is there a favorite piece that you like? Also, while we're at it, we got to say, we got we to slide that in there. What, what's your pick for this for the Supercross coming up this weekend? So two twofold question. Oh, a favorite piece. Well, to answer Dave's question, I, I think it, it comes down to writing for me. Everything starts with a written story. I want to write the story first, and then I'll, I can make it into an audio story. And in the case of the BW50, it becomes a, a video too. But I think for me, everything starts with the writing. That's my favorite. My favorite piece, oh man, I mean, they're like, they're like children, right? But that Terry Pratt story, to kind of close that one off, that was such an unexpected calling. I mean, it was kind of a risk, right? Anytime you put something out there, you run the risk of, will anybody care enough to read this, listen to this, watch this? And I had no, I, no idea. I'm writing about someone that nobody needed that story, right? But when you read it, people are like, I am so glad I know. I now know that story. And I, like I said, the response was amazing. And the books, people were so grateful that the book was back out there. I, I really felt like 
wow, it's like I'm providing the community some kind of service that I never expected to do that. But to get that back out there, to finish Terry's work, to help out his sister clean out her storage unit, I mean, it was so gratifying. It was so rewarding. And to tell the story, because I sat on those books for, for months. I'm like, what am I going to do with these things? I didn't want to just put them out there without context. And so telling the story and having the context along with the product, that's really at the heart of every, everything I do. Everything has to have a story behind it first. The story of the story. The story of the story, yes. And now the Supercross season. If I'm being totally honest, I don't follow what's happening currently as closely as I should. I enjoy watching the races. I love it. I love a good battle. I love a good race. But I am so focused on you know the stories that I'm telling, which sometimes I'll tell a story about a current athlete, a current rider. I'm not only about things that happened 30, 40 years ago, but I'm not like ingrained in the day-to-day of what's happening amongst today's crop of riders like you know a rider gets injured or a rider breaks up with his girlfriend or you know a new team or so-and-so's switching handlebars i just i just i hate to say it i just i don't care about that kind of stuff but i do care about a good personality story you know like when i told the austin forkner story a few years ago the chad reed story i love stuff like that i like to dive into what makes these guys tick and find something that no one else is really looking for. But if I'm going to tell you who's going to win the Supercross season this year, it's it's Cooper Webb. Cooper Webb mentally is stronger than any other rider. I mean, he, and I'm, I'm, I'm lifting from my friend, Clinton Fowler, who follow him at three laps down. And I might butcher this stat, Clinton, so I'm sorry. It had something to do with laps led. Like Cooper... Once he got into the lead, that was it. He's winning the race. He didn't always lead from the start, whereas Kenny was the exact opposite of that. And I'm not giving you my opinion here. This is just cold, hard data. Kenny often got into the lead early, lost positions. Cooper Webb, if he led at a certain point, he didn't go backwards ever. That was it. Race was over with. And he is so mentally strong like that. Eli Tomac is ungodly fast but unpredictable and then you know who knows what's going to happen with the you know two kawasaki riders ac and anderson i'm excited to see malcolm stewart on the husky i mean there's tons of potential out there but if you were to ask me who's going to win the series i'm going with cooper webb all right that's fair enough and uh, we're not going to hold your feet to the fire but i uh, appreciate the uh, the depth and insight and the and the data and the, they say statistics never lie that's for sure so, Brett, we could talk for hours with you, man. You've got so much to cover, and uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I wanted to take the last few moments, if you don't mind, if you want to mention your website, where to find you, and also social media, the best place to look for you so that folks can uh, can look you up. Yeah, check out the stories at wewentfast.com. Favorite podcast player, just search We Went Fast. Every article that I put up there, I read as an audio release. Uh, I've got a new one coming out this week about Jeremy McGrath and the Knack-Knack. It was a story I wrote a few years ago that uh, I just didn't get around to voicing. Finally did that. Look me up on Instagram and Facebook at We Went Fast. Awesome. Thanks again, Brett. We appreciate you taking time to spend with us at uh, Pit Pass Moto, man. Thanks. Happy New everyone. Thanks, Dale. Thanks, Dave.
Thanks again to our guests for being with us today and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review us. We really appreciate it. Make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog and our brand new store where you can get your Pit Pass swag. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson, producer Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. I'm Dave Sulecki. And I'm Dale Spangler. See you next week on Pit Pass Moto. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.